all know exactly what happened three years ago. No one expected it, and it stayed with us for years. It's become a pocket of time we all remember what we were doing. Just before lockdowns and the restrictions, it was this time in 2020 when China began telling people when they could leave their homes, and soon other governments followed. But with all that, more than 6 million people have lost their lives. The ripples of loss, burden and damage were huge. People's health suffered, as well as financial complications. But this recent heavy history, not everyone wants to remember. Many countries have already turned their COVID-19 page. And let's be frank, we've been living in pandemic fatigue for a while now. But do we want another pandemic? What have we learned? And most importantly, do we have the tools now to prevent another one from happening? and shutting the world down all over again. I think we've learnt a huge amount over the last three years, really. Um, To me, one of the main things is that you can't ignore public health preparedness. And it's so many times in the last hundred years, the public health funding has been cut because nobody can see the immediate benefits. And then you get something like COVID or HIV AIDS, increases in tuberculosis, and suddenly the cost of dealing with those events and emergencies far outweigh the savings that you made a couple of years ago. What's the thing that we've got from COVID-19 that can help us when the next pandemic hits? I guess the big lesson of history when we look back in decades time is that COVID drove the development of mRNA vaccines and related mRNA technology that's going to be very important not just for the future control of COVID but other infections. This is Beyond the Headlines, I'm Inas Rafai and this week we're looking into how prepared we would be to face another pandemic. We look at the legacy of COVID-19 After three years since the first lockdown, health experts and scientists have spoken to us and shared a common knowledge about what it means to be prepared. Before we start, if you want to get all the latest episodes as soon as they come out, then just hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts. WHO has been assessing this outbreak around the clock and we're deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. It's been three years since the World Health Organization announced COVID-19 a public health emergency of international concern which was the highest level alert issued. It was a historic announcement that made everyone take news coming from China about a new virus at the time seriously. But now the WHO has started considering lowering the alert level while stressing that it remains a dangerous infectious disease that can cause damage to health systems. In fact, the virus is still with us. For many reasons, for three years now, More than 13 billion doses of COVID vaccines have been rolled out. Yet, here it is. But the pandemic fatigue is true. The emotional, mental and physical exhaustion that many people lived with for three years have resulted in less adherence to public health measures, 
Even the World Health Organization said that the health workers are fatigued. But there must be some lessons learned by health experts to make sure that people don't go through lockdowns ever again. Of some of the advantageous legacies, as you say, as research, you know, we've had a huge amount of research on this infection. I mean, the number of papers that are coming out each week on COVID that have been coming out are more than the total numbers of papers that have been published on some other actually important diseases in all history. And a lot of that research has applicability to a much broader area than just to COVID. This is Dr Paul Hunter, Professor in Medicine at the University of East Anglia in the UK. Dr Hunter said the most important lesson that health institutions have learned was not to run down the public health services just because there's no immediate gain. Health systems were under severe threat because of the unexpected circumstances. COVID-19 has exposed vulnerability in some global health systems, which later impacted the spread and infections rate. But countries themselves were shocked and different in their reactions in how to detect it. So, did that change at least? Dr Hunter answers. I think one of the things is that, you know, having the other big thing is having plans to deal with things like this doesn't mean anything if you don't follow those plans. And we in the UK had a plans for dealing with coronavirus pandemics and didn't use them, didn't refer to them in the first part of the outbreak. And, And arguably, I mean, it's always very difficult to say, well, if we'd done this, what would have happened? But arguably, things would have been easier. Um, and we wouldn't have had so much um, ill health uh, if we maybe had followed those um, uh, advice. And, and that's, you know, I, I've, uh, I think that that has probably been replicated across many countries internationally. It's not just the UK that didn't do that. Now, after three years, it's been shown that there's no single way to control a pandemic. It was rather a combination of actions to slow the spread of the virus against testing and tracing, wearing masks and vaccines later on. And because of that, countries had different reactions when it came to managing this crisis. One is when COVID happened, every country was virtually doing something different. You know, uh, there was no real strong consistency between countries. So even within Europe, there was very different things going on. And even within the United Kingdom, Scotland was doing stuff differently to England, which was doing stuff differently to Wales. And you can't help feeling that a lot of those differences, because the science is the same, the science and our understanding is consistent. But why is it that even within the country, and in Germany, the different regions, the different lenders in Germany, they uh, often did things very differently from each other. And, And you can't help wondering that actually whether this was more political than science-driven, that people were doing these things differently in order to perhaps distinguish them from their neighbours and from other countries, rather than actually coming up with some consistent, good quality advice. And learning to actually work in consensus with your neighbours is actually going to be one of the most important things and the fact that we didn't work in consensus with our neighbours and not just just you know it's not just the UK but all over the place you know even and in the US different states were treating Covid very differently. 
Many factors weigh in when measuring a country's response, including its economic position, healthcare system capacity, in addition to the public response and adherence to rules. For example, some countries imposed strict lockdowns, while others focused on testing and tracing. Lots of research has been done on it, such as Deep Knowledge Group, which has ranked the most responsive of 200 countries, dividing them into tiers, taking into consideration their health, economic and social stability. Tier 1, for example, had more than 20 countries, including the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Professor of Medicine and lead of Mayo Clinic's Vaccine Research Group in the US, Dr. Gregory Poland stresses on this. I think another part of preparedness, and here I'll actually uh, point at the UAE, at Qatar, at Israel, um, at the UK, much of the real-time, real-world effectiveness data came from those countries who had uh, high-quality public health infrastructure and data systems that allowed them to accumulate, analyze, and disseminate data rapidly such that it was actionable. And it's clear we need investment in those kinds of technologies. Best handling of the pandemic can be measured in different ways, but it's true that some countries have shown more effectiveness in their response, including early lockdowns and massive testing sites, such as New Zealand, Taiwan and South Korea. But now that we at least have an idea of what to do, in case another outbreak happened, can we say that we have the tools to prevent another pandemic? Dr Hunter doubts that. I'm not entirely sure that we can ever totally prevent future pandemics. You know, pandemics of the size that we've just lived through typically only happen once or twice a century or have in the past happened once or twice a century. There is concern that as more people are alive and population uh uh, sizes get bigger and cities get bigger and all the concerns about global environmental change that such events might happen more frequently in future and there's good evidence to support that but at the moment I don't see much difference about preventing future pandemics sadly I'm assuming that the sort of the illegal Wildlife trade has stopped, at least for the time being. So that would probably reduce the risks of further pandemics. But if that starts up again, then it's only a matter of time before we get another one. There's a valid concern, especially that it's estimated that more than 60% of all infectious diseases in humans are of animal origin, according to the statistics of the WHO and the Centre of Diseases Control and Prevention. And it's not just COVID that had an animal source but also SARS, Ebola, H1N1 influenza and HIV. All of this reflects the need of ongoing surveillance and research to prevent their transmission. David Taylor, Professor of Pharmaceutical and Public Health Policy at UCL, agrees. Most infections originally came from animals to humans. That's the history of humanity. When we were very few of us, a few tens of millions on the planet, living in isolation, what did people die of? They died either of accidents or in hunting, things like that, or they died of infections often caught from animals. So we've always had that problem. We've opened up the world in the last half century, hugely penetrated into environments which were previously not penetrated by human beings, 
And at the same time, we've got very much better travel facilities, more traveling around. So if something does cross from the animal kingdom to humans, then there's bigger chance of it infecting lots of people if it has that capacity. Are we much better off than we were in the past? Is there much more research? No, but on the other hand, our technologies like rapid production of vaccines, not just mRNA vaccines, but other sorts of vaccines, are we better prepared to do that should we be faced with another virus? Yes, I think we are. Dr Taylor pointed out one of the main legacies of COVID-19 pandemic, the vaccines, have been effective in reducing the number of infections, hospitalizations, and deaths caused by the virus. By and large, there have been some irresponsible people saying vaccines don't work or are bad for you. You can be sure that if you take your vaccine, which has been through a proper regulatory agency, like the MHRA in the UK or the equivalents in the States or Europe, China, etc., then vaccines do work. The thing is, they're very variable. It depends partly on you, your own immune system, your genetics, the things you've been exposed to in life. It depends partly on the society around you. Remember, vaccines work at two levels. One, to defend you individually, and also collectively. So how many contacts do you have? How many other people have received the vaccine? Um, How much information do we have that people act on about acting in ways which reduce transmission when we want to? And then, of course, there's the, the, the full biology. What strain of virus are they, uh, they addressing? COVID coronaviruses tend to change quite quickly. So we've got that problem, which is why you need to update vaccines sometimes. You take all those things together. While there has been a lot of misinformation and disbelief about it, scientists agreed on the effectiveness of vaccines. Dr Hunter also believes it will open new doors in science and vaccine technology. I think one legacy, particularly I think the mRNA vaccines, which will find an increasingly important role across a whole range of diseases and not just infectious diseases, but cancers. This technology will, I think it's likely to revolutionise the way we handle and treat and manage a whole range of of not just infectious diseases coming forward and um, you know it's difficult to know how far this will go and you know and, but I think it will I think we are likely to see some fairly amazing advances over the next five to ten years as a, as a result of the developments that we've we've been able to achieve during COVID. The vaccines were said to be effective in preventing symptomatic COVID-19 and severe outcomes such as hospitalisation and death. Dr Poland, who is leading a vaccine research group, has spent 30 years studying vaccines. There has always been vaccine misinformation and disinformation. Education can help prevent that, but it really needs to begin in the grade school years, not when adults have already formed wrong opinions and are hesitant to let those opinions go. I think we as a globe did not do the kind of job we're capable of doing in terms of telling people what they could expect from vaccines and and what to not expect from vaccines. You know, the public got the idea that these vaccines would prevent infection. Well, they do to some degree, but uh, as I published four months into the start 
of the pandemic in, a, in an editorial uh, that I called Tortoise and Hares is that an S-only mRNA approach would eventually be doomed to fail. And so we've got to communicate this to the public in a way that nudges them and helps them to be more accepting of vaccines. And then we have to figure out how do you deal with the vaccine rejectors, the science rejectors, the people who benefit from sort of trolling myths and disinformation. There are different factors in the equation to determine how effective the specific vaccine and the prevalence of the virus in a given area. But still, there's no huge doubt from health experts. I think there is no question. It is beyond a shadow of any level of doubt that the vaccines we had available substantially and positively impacted the course of the pandemic. Going forward, it's less clear. But at least at this point, the estimates out there vary from about 6 to 15 million lives that were saved uh, internationally. I think it's probably even more than that. Uh, And countless lives positively impact because they didn't have uh, a complication So now we know that preventing another pandemic requires a multifaceted approach and a combination of research, monitoring, international cooperation, education and preparedness. But how soon should we worry about another pandemic? Dr Taylor has a theory. To some extent, when you're looking for things which are very low risk of actually occurring, it's a low risk there'll be another pandemic in the next 10, 20, 30 years. But when you've also got a very high chance of them causing great grief, death, economic loss, if they do occur, it's always uncertain how much you should be investing to protect against things which may never happen. The truth is, on a day-to-day basis, we've got to deal with cancers, we've got to deal with other infections, we've got to deal with heart disease. It's understandable that healthcare systems tend to focus their problems, their resources, their attention on the problems we've got today. So we just need to be flexible to keep in mind what will happen and to avoid bureaucratic tick box approaches, really be as nimble on our feet if early detection we need. Global monitoring systems, WHO and other bodies have been good in in encouraging that. But then we need to be able to think fast and think flexibly. Preparedness would mean building public health systems that are prepared to respond quickly and effectively to outbreaks, mainly having healthcare with availability of hospital beds, intensive care units, healthcare workers, and infrastructure. It's clear that healthcare institutions, healthcare providers, and, and the public, and the government, and any other institution must be prepared. This is the third time in what, 20 years or less that this has happened to various degrees or another. So I think the ability to rapidly implement an emergency system, to have the materiel that you need, like masks and gloves, proper N95 masks, antivirals, IV solutions, all that material, an educated workforce that's ready and willing And then, of course, 
the whole you know preventive and therapeutic side which would include vaccines antimicrobials antivirals monoclonals and i think that one issue that that i see is that not all countries take that seriously we have countries even even high income countries for example uh, in europe or south america that uh, heavily depend on other countries for the protection for the eventual protection of their own population so preparedness needs to happen at the local level at the regional and national level but also at the global level thanks this week to dr paul hunter dr david taylor and dr gregory poland this episode has been produced by dura farid and arthur edison this was a beyond the headlines i'm inas rafai and if you want all the episodes as soon as they come out then just hit the subscribe button on your podcast app if you can leave us a review while you're there it makes all the difference <laughs>